Have you ever wondered why Yaakov Avinu compared his children and the tribes they represented to animals? And why specifically those animals? Now, when you have a look at the blessing that Yaakov gave to Binyamin, Targum Unculus and Targum Yonason have slightly different interpretations of what that means. And within those two interpretations are two worldviews, the Babylonian and the Israeli or Jerusalem worldviews, about how we're supposed to approach our Judaism and whether to focus on what we can get done now or what we can get done best. Commenting the Pasuk, that says, Binyamin will be like a wolf who devours his prey. Tirgim Unklas translates it as follows. Binyamin, Be'arei in his land the Shechina will dwell, Uvachsante Yasven Makdusha, and a holy place will be in his, in his lodging. But Targum Yonason ben Uziel Kosov, whereas Targum Yonason says, Binyamin is Shevet Takif, a strong tribe, Kediva Tarfe, he will devour his prey like a wolf, and and the Shechina of the master of the universe will be in his land, of Achsante Yasvane Beis Muktesh on the Beis Hamikdash will be in his territory. Now, at first glance, they're both saying pretty much the same thing, that this is the place Binyamin will house the divine presence. But, the Ragachava points out in Tzafnas Paneach that there are very dis- distinct uh, perspectives over here, offered by the Targum Unklis and the Targum Yonason. When the Unklis says that there will be a holy place in his territory, the Rechava says that means a place that is designated to put the blood of the Korbanos, i.e., he's referring specifically to the Mizbech, like the opinion of Levi in the Gemara, that the southwest section of the base of the Mizbech, where one pours blood of different offerings, that is in the territory of Binyamin, who is this one so-called devouring, and in this case, devouring the Korbanos. Whereas the rest of the base of the Mizbech, which is in the territory of Yehuda, never sees the blood of Korbanos. So according to Unkrus, the reference over here is that the Mizbech will be in Binyamin's territory, whereas Vachsante Yasvane Beis Magdisho, according to Targum Yonason, Koyal Beis Amigdash Bechlal, he's speaking more generally that the Beis Amigdash will be in Binyamin's territory, Binyamin. So now let's understand what drives this debate between these two opinions. What is the, the thinking behind their two opinions? Especially when you consider that they both really said the same introduction. That the Shechina will be in the territory of Binyamin. So now what's the difference if that Shechina presence is represented by the Mizbeach specifically or the Beis Hamikdash generally? To get there, let's ask the big question. Why compare the Shvatim to animals? So let's analyze the overall thinking behind why many of the Shvatim are compared to animals. Gurari Yehuda, Yehuda is compared to a lion. Don Nochash is compared to a snake. Naftali Ayola is compared to a doe. Until eventually you reach the last of them, which is one we're focused on, Binyamin's Eivitrof, that Binyamin is compared to a devouring wolf. So, so let's understand. You want to tell me something about the Shevet or about the individual? 
about certain characteristics of theirs. So why do we say, loy gibor? We don't say, this one is strong, oitoria, for that one devours, vechayotzeboze, or something like that. And ari oizev, we specifically relate it to a lion or to a wolf, etc. Why do we highlight that this particular trait is also the trait of a particular animal and the trait of that animal rather than the trait in its generic sense belongs to this tribe? In other words, we're not highlighting that these people have these traits. Rather, we're saying that these people are like certain animals that have those traits. Why would you do that? Just get cut to the point. This is a powerful tribe that is a devouring tribe, etc. And we can also understand besides the specific that each tribe is associated with a characteristic of and therefore a certain animal. Besides that, there has to be some link between the common denominator between all wild animals and the common denominator between all the Shvatim, and we need to discover what that is. So if we're going to speak about the traits associated with animals, characteristics of animals, we have to look at the Gemara at the end of Kiddushin that speaks about Rabbi Shimon ben Elazar saying, I've seen various animals who have various traits, and yet they don't have difficulty providing for themselves, so why do I? With regards to the traits of certain wild animals, right at the end of Kiddushin, the Gemara tells us, Tanya, we learned in a bright, Rabbi Shimon ben Elazar, my whole life, I never saw a deer that went drying figs in the sun, or a lion that was carrying loads as a porter, or a fox who was a shop owner. And they all have their needs provided for them without any stress or difficulty. And all of those beings were only created to serve me as a human. And I as a human or specifically as a Jewish person, I was created in order to serve my master. Then how could it be that those who are only created to serve me and yet they get everything they need without pain? If I then have a higher purpose to serve my master, is it not logical that I should be able to provide for myself without the difficulty and stress of, uh, of earning a living? So why is it not that way? It's just that my behavior is not as good as it should be. Therefore, and I've lost my possibility of easy income. As the Pasuk says, your Averis have diverted your brachas. So the commentaries point out that what are the specific trades that are discussed here in the Gemara? They are trades that suit the traits of these particular animals. So, what's unique about a, a, a deer or anything in that family is, you know, as a potential prey, it sleeps with one eye open. In other words, always alert. So that's, that suits the person who's going to put out the figs to dry because he has to be very alert to protect those figs from anything that might come to eat them or steal them while they're drying out in the fields. Say, considering the lion is the most powerful animal, so that suits the concept of a porter. Somebody has to be very strong to be able to carry big loads. And the fox that is sly, that suits the shop owner who knows how to make a back from business. So that's how the Mephoshim explain it. We have to understand further, though. Out of all the potential 
trades that are out there, occupations that are out there. Why these? Why don't we list other potential occupations that may suit other characteristics of other animals? For example, the dogma, a female deer, that is, Naftali is compared to this female deer, which is naturally very fast. It's very good for messengers. <coughs> like Naftali, right? When there was the whole debate between Esav and the children of Yaakov about the Maris Machpelah. So they sent Naftali. He was the appropriate person to be a messenger because he has the trait of Ayala Shlucha. Yet we don't find any reference in the Gemara that this is occupation associated with an Ayala, with a, a doe. So we've got to understand why these three. And before we can do that, we also have to note that almost the identical concept is shared in the Talmud Yerushalmi with a couple of significant differences. That's quoted in the name of Rabbi Shimon Ben-Alazah, quoting Rabbi Meir, in a different order to how it's presented in the Talmud Bavli, with an added occupation that's not mentioned in the Talmud Bavli. So what does it say there? It starts with the lion, who is the so-called porter, then Svikayat. Then it talks about the, 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 the deer that it represents, the person who drives the fig. So we've switched the first two around. And then, of course, Shul Chenreni, the sly fox that's at the shopkeeper. And then it adds, Ze'ev Moicha Kederos, a wolf that sells pots. So at Tzarek there are a few things about this we need to understand. How come in the Yerushalmi do we put the lion who represents the porter before the, the, the deer that represents the person drying figs? When, especially when logically the Bavli's order makes more sense, Tzvikayot's first, then Vari Sabal, and then Vashul Chenveni, because that would follow the normal process of how you go about drying figs and turning them into these fig cakes that you then sell. And the first step is to dry them, and that's represented by the Tzvikayot's, by the deer that represents the Kayot's occupation. After you have dried them out and, and made sure that they don't disappear, and now put them safely into jars, then, then you have the need for somebody to transport them. And then who do you transport it to? To the shopkeeper, which is the shore of the fox. So it's logical to follow the order of the Bavli, not the Yerushalmi. Why does the Yerushalmi change it? And don't tell us it's because of the dignity of the lion. Don't think the reason we put the lion first is because he's king of the jungle. That's not a good enough reason. And if you were to take that attitude, that we're putting them in order of their priority or hierarchy in, in nature, then, then the logic would have said straight after the lion, you then mention the fox, because he also has the, some degree of leadership. And is also known to be the smartest of all the animals. And in terms of its biological nature, it is much closer to a lion than it is to a deer. Considering a deer is a herbivorous animal and a fox is like a lion, a carnivorous animal. So the order doesn't make sense. That's the first question. Second question, which should be fairly obvious, why does Yerushalmi add another example, the wolf who is like the pot seller? 
And if he's selling, how's he different to a fox? What's the big difference between a wolf who sells pots over a fox who works in a shop selling items, merchandise? Surely they share the same general principle, namely to sell things. And lastly, what is the link between a wolf and selling pots? So we'll briefly look at some of the Mephoshim. We're not going to stop at that. We're going to look for a deeper meaning as well. Because selling pots is a fairly straightforward job that a simple person can do. Anybody could take that job. He doesn't have to necessarily be overly smart like the fox. So that's how some of the Mephoshim explain it. But when you really look at the context, where it looks like we're looking to link each occupation to a specific trait of that particular animal, and therefore selling pots must somehow be linked to the trait of a wolf. Just like we linked the kayats to the deer, and the sabal to the lion, and the chenmeni to the fox. So therefore, there's got to be more to the story than just simply that it's an easy job and anybody could do it, and a wolf is apparently an anybody. So to get to understand this, let's analyze the wording of Rabbi Shimon ben Elazar, where his whole message is, they were created to serve me, and I'm created to serve Hashem, so if it's easy for them, it should be easy for me. The way he says it does seem a little bit strange, especially because he effectively repeats the same thing twice. So let's analyze his words. Seeing as he says clearly when he gets to his logical extrapolation. Think about it. Those who were only created to serve me, the human. And yet they get everything they need without difficulty. Therefore the logic says that I who was created to serve Hashem surely should have an easier time getting what I need. So if he's telling us that in his message, why does he say those words already beforehand? They were only created to serve me and I'm created to serve Hashem. Why do you have to say it twice? Just tell it to us when it's relevant at the point where if I who am created to serve Hashem, well, if they who are created to serve me have an easy time earning, then surely I who is created to Hashem should be the same. So what's Rabbi Shimon ben Elazar telling us over here? Before he gets to the practical application, he's telling us a philosophical perspective that every Jewish person has to have to understand how Hashem has structured and designed the world. So the explanation is this. The purpose of everything that exists in creation is Bishvil Yisrael for the Jewish people. As we know, the famous Medrash, Be'ez Reishis, the world was created for the sake of the Jewish people. We are the purpose of everything that exists and everything that was created in the world. Whether it's plants, whether it is animals, and even humans. The Rambam details this quite elaborately in his introduction to the Mishnahis, where he says, Everything that exists under or lower than the moon's orbit, in other words, in our environment, exist only for the purpose of people. So therefore, either in the animal kingdom, there are animals who are there for us to eat, like sheep and cattle, etc. And those that are not there for us to eat are there to serve as us in other ways. 
without eating them. Like a donkey can carry a load that a human cannot carry. Or a horse that we can use to ride a distance further than we'd be able to walk and quicker than we'd be able to get there. And the same would apply to the plant kingdom as well. Everything is there for us. Taking it deeper, the same applies to the human to the human race. In order that the ultimate human, which is the Jewish human, should be able to engage in godly wisdom and good deeds. So it needs a world that is a functional world within which you have people who will develop all of the systems and all of the provisions that a person can live. And if the rest of the world is creating all of those systems and sustainable environments, then we can do what the Ebishter wants, which is to serve Hashem and to learn and to daven and to do mitzvahs. As the Rambam describes in great detail there. The purpose of every single thing that exists, including the 8 billion humans on the planet, is to provide the Jewish people with the things that they need so we can study Torah and do mitzvahs. So we know that as a principle. To that, Rabbi Shem ben Elazar adds a perspective. It's not that me, because I carry the privilege card of being Jewish, therefore the whole world has to service me. No, it's when I am when I'm engaged in serving Hashem, that's where they really serve me. In other words, the fact that these different animals we've identified the deer is designed with the characteristics necessary to look after the figs in the field or the lion to carry the load or the fox to be able to make deals on merchandise. The fact that they were created with those characteristics, it's not just so that they could fulfill a purpose that frees me up so that I can delegate those roles and I can do more meaningful things. They are in their particular roles to service me in a way so that I could serve the Ebishta better. Whatever traits they have, whatever value they bring to the world is to facilitate Torah and Mitzvahs, not to facilitate me as an individual. And we're going to get into a very specific example of this in order for me to do what a Jewish person is supposed to do, which is to take elements of this world, items of this world, and transform them into holy items, items dedicated to mitzvahs, which obviously only happens when you fulfill the mitzvah. To get there, there are three key steps that are necessary to allow us to be able to serve the Ebishter through Torah mitzvahs and transform the world to become a holy place. Those three steps are. Those are the three key pre-steps that allow us to be able to do what we're supposed to do to fulfill mitzvahs, to make the world a holy place. And so therefore we have to unpack what these three things are and what they represent. Ah, you're going to say, so why were these characteristics given to those animals? But the fact is those animals actually don't do those jobs for us. We don't see those animals fulfilling those roles for humans. I haven't seen a, 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 a deer who was actually out there in the fields drying figs. tells us that's because the world's not perfect. Because we haven't behaved properly. 
The simple understanding of what Rabbi Shem Ben Elaza says is because we didn't behave as we should have, therefore we have stress associated with earning a living, to the extent that sometimes we lose our income altogether. But beyond that, the fact that we didn't behave as we should is why we have to work at all. Not just that it's difficult and that it is stressful, but the fact that we have to work at all. Like the Rabbi Shimba Yochoi famously said, if Jews do what they're supposed to, what they just want of us, then all of our work is taken care of by other beings, whether they're human or animal beings. Whereas, says Rabbi Shimba Yochoi, if we're not doing what they just want, then we have no choice. Then we've got to do the work ourselves. So, if the work to fulfill my panosa is not going to be done by the creatures out there, then certainly the preparation for me to be able to affect what a mitzvah is all about is definitely not going to be done by the creatures out there. Not only are they not going to dry figs, they're not going to do whatever drying figs represents in terms of the preparation to do a mitzvah. It's not even going to be done by the nations of the world who also are compared to animals. So we've got to do this work now. Let's question what is this work? What does the drying figs, the transporting them, and the selling them represent in terms of how we prepare ourselves to transform the world from and mundane to a holy place, specifically through the observance of mitzvahs? So, what all three of those occupations have in common is that each one of them is a preparation for the ultimate, right? So, you take the figs, you dry them, you transport them, and then you sell them. The purpose, obviously, is to make money. In spiritual terms, these are all preparations for the ultimate, which is to serve the Ebishna. To understand that, we have to analyze each one of them, how they work and what they represent, because that will help us to understand what their significance is and why these are the three occupations Rabbi Shimon ben Elazar focused on. These are three steps that go in ascending order. So, let's start with the deer that so-called is potentially able to drive figs in the field. So what's the goal? What, what, what's the job description? First, he's got to gather the figs and bring them to the field. Which is a place that is exposed to sunlight. And then he has to watch and make sure that they stay there safely until they are ready to be used or sold. Ari Sabal, what's the job of the lion who's the porter? Masois, who carries loads. His role is transportation. Take it from here, move it to there. The, the smart or, or sly fox who's in the shop, his job is not to move the stock, but rather to change who owns the stock, sell it from me to you. That these cakes of figs should now move from the ownership of one person to the next. So if we had to set, summarize the three things, Shinei HaGuf, the first step is to change actual physical item from moist to dry. Hamokim, its location from the field to the shop. Habailos, its ownership from the seller to the buyer. All three of those represent key spiritual steps that are required in order to do a mitzvah, in order to transform a physical item to become holy. Let's unpack what the spiritual significance is. Tzvi Kayetz is going to have two parts to it. 
יש להם מצבים רבים שבהם אין עוד מישראל יוכל להסביר לו שקיום הטבע המצווה. There are many scenarios where it isn't actually possible to start doing the mitzvah just yet. There's a step that has to happen first. V'atam adav or hu, and there are one or two possible reasons why that would be. Aleph, either chaser lo yedea samatzis. I don't know the, the, the facts on the ground. I don't know if this is how the mitzvah should be done or if the mitzvah can be done at all. Ulo dugma. Clear example of this would be, yesh mitzvahs anoigas apikuach nefoshes. There are certain mitzvahs that are associated with danger to life, like breaking Shabbos. Or feeding somebody an item that's not kosher. Over hence, I don't know. I don't know if this is a life-threatening scenario. So I first will have to consult, just like you take the figs and put them out into the sunlight, I need to take this issue and bring it to light to know, is this a scenario of a threat to life or not? Do I break these areas of Torah or not? Another example is, that he spent... Uh, 18 months together with a breeder of animals to understand what blemishes are permanent or transient in an animal because that would affect the halachas of a carbon. So you don't know what you don't know. You have to find out. So the Tzvi Kayetz could represent finding out information that I need to have in order to be able to do a mitzvah. Or there's another reason why I'm not yet ready to do the mitzvah, and that is the, the object isn't ready yet to be used for a mitzvah. It has to, whatever the process is, has to be completed. A great example of this would be parchment to make tefillin. And tefillin is relevant because the entire Torah is compared to tefillin. The first thing you have to do is actually remove the skin from the animal. And then you have to work the skin through its various processes. You've got to do all the various steps, stretch it out, remove the hair, work it, salt it, all the various things you've got to do. That relates to the occupation that is associated with the deer, the occupation of drying the figs. The first thing you have to make sure is that the figs are not in a dark place where they're shaded from the sun. At a massive shell over his gallus, they've got to be in an open area where things are visible and clear. Only when it's out in the sun, then I can see at which point it will be ready, which represents knowing at which point the mitzvah is ready. And then I can analyze how and when to apply the mitzvah. So the Tzvi Kayetz represents the two key steps. I need to know what I'm doing and the object needs to be ready for the mitzvah. Ari Sabal, the next step is the transportation. Shinoi Mokim. Well, then that's actually fairly straightforward because we know that the item, let's say that there's a prayer has to get to the Jewish person in order that he could put it on. So there has to be a transportation of the object to the actor in order that he could fulfill the mitzvah that he has to do. Obafrat, especially when you consider that sometimes the person can't go to the place of the mitzvah. Let's say there's an item which is permissible to use to do a mitzvah. But it's currently in a place that I'm not allowed to enter. Let's say, for example, there's a pair of tefillin that somehow wound up inside a marketplace where they sell idolatry. I'm not allowed to go to such a place. Or in the, a place that is, that is a place of people of ill repute. So then I need a transporter. I need an Uber to bring it to me. I need someone who is... It, who has the capacity to be able to move the item from where it is to where I need it to be. 
which would then facilitate that the Jewish person can do the mitzvah. So what's the Ari Sabal? Making sure that the item with which to perform the mitzvah is accessible to the Jewish person. And then the third step is Shulchen Vani, the smart, foxy uh, shopkeeper. This is a little bit more of a rare scenario, but sometimes it happens. Sometimes in order to get to the point that you could do the mitzvah, the item actually has to completely change ownership from where it belongs and what it's associated with before a Jewish person could get involved in it. And an example of this will be as the Gemara tells us, and Rashi points it out also in, in uh, Pasha's Chukas, that Ammon and Moab, we were warned that we're not allowed to touch them, we're not allowed to conquer their land, we're not allowed to go to war against them, and yet we find that the Yidin did. So the explanation is that's because Sichon came along and he first conquered their land. Now it's no longer associated with Ammon and Moab, and therefore it is open season for us to go in and to engage. Which means the only way to conquer the lands of Ammon and Moab and incorporate them into the Jewish kingdom, which means that they should become lands where you could fulfill all of the mitzvahs that are associated with the Holy Land. It first had to go through a trade. Sichon had to come along. It's exactly like the wheeling and dealing that happens in a shop. You've got to be a bit sly with it. Sichon comes along. He takes over the land. We're allowed to attack Sichon and therefore we can get it. So therefore what we've seen is that the three occupations, the Gemara, the Talmud Bavli uh, discusses, Rabbi Shimon ben Allah discusses, each of them represents a key step of how you get to the point that you can fulfill a mitzvah, which is the purpose of the whole of creation, that we Jews should take the world and turn it holy. So let's go back to the first one. Let's see the, the deer that represents the person drying figs. Where there are two things. You've got to firstly bring it out into the open, into the sun, and then make sure that it is safe. That's not clear enough just if I'm talking about drying out figs in a field. That it's not, it's not, it, it, it's not enough of that. Okay, so, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a, 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 a deer and he goes out there and he has the, the, the capacity to be able to, to dry the figs. There's got to be more to the story than that. That's why we add another layer of depth. These are not just concepts that relate to the, 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 the preparation of an item, but they speak to the, to the essence of what mitzvahs are all about. In other words, in order to do a mitzvah, just like the fig has to change from being a fresh fig to a dry fig in order to become part of these ketzios, the items that we use to do a mitzvah, they also have to physically change. Not only that I have to become aware of how you use them, they've got to physically change. For a Jew to fulfill a mitzvah with a physical item, the item has to change. Like we mentioned, the skin of the animal has to become parchment, which is made into tefillin. Or if you want to take an esrogan, that in order to fulfill the mitzvah, you actually have to remove them from the tree. So something's got to change. They've got to go from a growing item to something which is now separate. That is a fundamental change to the actual item. The actual esrogan is different now. They now no longer grow. They now are no longer nourished from the tree because they've been cut off. And that's exactly like drying out figs. You take the estrog off the tree and it does start to dry. Of course, it will take a long time. And then as we said, 
after you've changed the item that it is now suitable to do a mitzvah with it, it has to be transported to the Jewish person so that he can actually use it. You'll see the same thing. Both of these elements apply to the wool that we use for tzitzis. First of all, you need You've got to actually shear the wool off the animal, which is like taking those figs to dry in the field. Then then you need to transport it so that the tzitzis actually gets to the person or the wool gets to the person who's going to make the tzitzis. The same with a, a, a horn that you're going to use for shoifa. The elements that you're going to use for the cover for the schach or for the walls of your sukkah and many many other mitzvahs will illustrate the same point you've got to change the item so it is suitable for a mitzvah and then you've got to get it to the person who's going to do the mitzvah and probably the most radical example is the skin that is used for tefillin or for the parchment of a mezuzah or a sefer Torah. As we mentioned, first you've got to remove the skin from the animal. Then you've got to like really change it completely by working it into a piece of parchment because skin does not look like parchment. It's a very big change. That changes the actual circumstance of the skin itself. And then again, you've got to transport it to where a Jewish person is. So you see that these two elements are, are present in pretty much every mitzvah. The fashioning of the item to be used for a mitzvah and the transportation of the item to the Jew who's going to use it for a mitzvah. So it emerges that these two occupations represented by the deer and by the lion are present in many, many, many mitzvahs. Which, as we'll explain a little bit later, is why this is where you see the difference between the Bavli and Yoshami. Which of these two takes precedence because they are so, so common. So these are the things we have to examine. Whereas what the sly fox represents as the shopkeeper, where you've got to change the status and the ownership, the land can't be it's got to become sichoin land before it could be delivered to the client. That's fairly rare in the preparation of items to be used for mitzvah. Not common at all. Okay, but now with this information, let's go back to our big question. Why does Yaakov compare the Shvatim specifically to animals? Now we can understand why this happens and why it's Dafka through Yaakov. Just like, as we've discussed, the animals represented specifically by the three animals in the Gemara Kiddushin, they talk to the, to the idea of preparing physical items to be used as mitzvahs. Right? They represent the concept of how you make the world ready for the Jew to do a mitzvah. And that there are three different processes, two very common ones and one more rare. That relates very much to what the general efforts and focus of Yaakov and the Shvatim would be all about. Their job was to prepare themselves and to prepare the world to be ready to receive the Torah. It's explained in multiple places. Why did the Jews have to suffer through this prolonged Golos in Mitzrayim in order to get to the Torah? One of the explanations that's brought commonly is 
because prior to the Golos Mitzrayim, Yisrael and Melgam in Yoni Ho'el and both the Jews and by extension the entire world, Loi Ho'yu Ru'uyim Umuchshorim Nasiyas Advarim Vachafeitzim Agashmim Lechefzah Shal Mitzvah Kedusha. The Jews were not yet empowered to transform physical things to become holy, and the world was not yet susceptible to become holy. Umitzrayim was a kura barzel. Mitzrayim was this big smelting pot. Which helped to refine and elevate the Jewish people and the world. That transformed and prepared all the items of the world to the extent that the Jewish people could use them to fulfill Torah mitzvahs. Now, where did Golas Mitzrayim begin? Golas Mitzrayim is going with the Shvatim going down to Mitzrayim, Yachad im Yaakov, together with Yaakov. But the real burden of Mitzrayim began only after Yaakov and Yosef had passed away. While the rest of the family was still there, and of course the subsequent generations were going to live in Mitzrayim. So therefore you could understand these three preparatory elements represented by these three creatures which helped to prepare the world and the items within the world for what the Torah is there so that Jews could fulfill Torah mitzvahs the beginning of that process happened when the Yidden were still in Mitzrayim as the Shvatim therefore the Brochus that they're given must speak to this theme and must express the concept of preparing ourselves to be able to do Torah mitzvahs so that explains why Yaakov refers to his sons as these different animals. We understand now that these three animals specifically, the Tzvi, Ari, and Shul, they really represent the concept of preparing the, the world in order to facilitate Torah mitzvahs. Now we've got to tackle the differences between the Talmud Bavli and Yerushalmi and how they tell the story at the end of Kiddushin and why the Yerushalmi adds a, an additional example and why they, dis- they disagree about who comes first, the Tzvi Kayetz or the Ari Sabal. In order to understand that, let's look at one of the principal differences between the approach to Torah of the Bavli and Yerushalmi. When analyzing many of the differences, the philosophical or um, uh, the, the, uh, the, the differences in, in Torah approach between Babli and Yerushalmi, we'll find that the Talmud Babli takes this attitude. Whenever you have to weigh up the current situation versus the coming situation, the future situation, we always prioritize the current situation. Even if prioritizing the current situation may mean that the next step or the future will be somewhat weakened. Whereas the Yerushalmi always says, let's look at the next step, let's see what's going to happen next. If the next step will add value, then the future possibility overrides the current opportunity. So Dugma Ladavar, let's use a, an example. Ashak Levatariya Hayadua, well-known debate, which is im inyan zrizin makdimin mitzvahs, the principle that we have that a person who is alert and enthusiastic will always do a mitzvah as early as possible. 
Is that good enough reason to compel a person to do a mitzvah at the earliest opportunity? Even if that means that he's not going to have the best way to do the mitzvah, which he could have had had he delayed. For example, having a large crowd, which brings much honor to Hashem. So let's say a bris milay. Are you supposed to have the bris first thing in the morning because of Zizan Makdimin? Or should you wait till later in the day so you can have a larger crowd? Or do we say what's coming later, which is the added value, that's the, the, the compelling element. So rather delay a mitzvah so that you can have the added value of a large crowd. Even though that naturally means I'm going to lose the immediate opportunity to fulfill the great principle of being enthusiastic and doing a mitzvah at the first opportunity. Here's another example. Let's assume there's a person one day of Sukkot who has He has a little vestig and all the things that he needs, but they're pretty average quality. And his special extra Mahudar set that he ordered is arriving later in the day. So, do we focus on the, on the present? The present is right now I have an opportunity to do a mitzvah as soon as possible. Or do I look at the future and say, no, let's wait because later I'll be able to have a better way to do the mitzvah. That's a debate between the Talmud Bavli and Yerushalmi. Bavli says, focus on now. Yerushalmi says, let's see what's going to unfold. So in the same way as the Talmud Bavli and Yerushalmi will debate these principles with regards to how you do a mitzvah, they would likewise debate the preparation for a mitzvah, do we focus on what could be achieved now, or do we look at what benefit there might be to waiting? A great area where this is illustrated is in the difference between the deer that represents the person drying the figs, or the lion that represents the person schlepping. Which one takes priority? So in order to understand it, let's look at the process. The nature of figs is you don't get to pick them all in one shot. There could be one that's ripe today on this tree and some others that are only going to be ripe in a few days' time on the same tree. So as soon as one fig is ripe, we have to ask ourselves, yes, there's two options. Do I say, okay, well, these are ready, so let's get started with them. Let's focus on what we have now. Right now we have some ripe figs. Let's put them into the field and start drying them. Or do I wait until there's a large amount of ripe figs, and then let's take them to dry, in which case I'm going to need a portal. Because it's going to be a large amount. I'm going to need somebody to transport it. So let's extrapolate that to the question about how you prepare for a mitzvah. So do I grab the first opportunity to prepare an item in order that it should be ready for a mitzvah? So let's say, for example, I want to make tefillin or mezuzahs. So I've got one piece of skin. Let's start getting the, the, the first pair of tefillin out. Maybe it's not the best quality skin that I could get, but it's the one that's available. So do I take the attitude of tzvi kayats? Let's focus on what's available and get started. So do I wait because maybe a little later or in a few days time I'll have many more skins and of a higher quality. 
That's represented by Ari Sabal. Maybe I'm going to have to wait till there's a large amount which needs to be transported. Because let's be honest, even the preparation for the mitzvah, even before you do the mitzvah, it's ideal that the preparation should be in the best way possible. Even in the preparation of a mitzvah, we still have this, the, the principles of doing a mitzvah in the best, beautiful, most beautiful way. So there you have the same dilemma. Is the priority to get the mitzvah started or is it to have as much as possible or as beautiful as possible? So we're going to say the same, the same principle, this debate, is exactly what distinguishes the view of the Talmud Babli in Yerushalmi. From the perspective of the Talmud Babli, where the current situation is the compelling situation, then in the same way as we have to be enthusiastic to do a mitzvah at the first opportunity, we also have to be equally enthusiastic that the preparation for a mitzvah is done as soon as it comes to hand. Even if that means I'm going to produce a small amount of items that will be ready for a mitzvah. And perhaps even the quality will not be as good as I anticipated. But the fact is, the Bible says, focus on now. Whereas from the perspective of the Talmud, Yerushalmi, that the ultimate is the glory and the beauty that you can bring to a mitzvah. So what the delay will produce will be even better than what the urgency will produce. The same principle will apply to preparation. If I delay and that allows me to produce more and better product, that's surely what takes precedence. Which would explain why the Yerushalmi switches the order from the Talmud Bavli and says, first priority is the porter who represents large amounts of product over the Tzvikayets who represents getting the job done as quickly as possible. With that in mind, we can understand why the Yoshami and not the Babli includes the possibility of the wolf that represents the pot seller. To understand why a wolf would be associated with selling pots is linked to the difference in their predatory habits between a wolf and a lion. Ari says the Gemara, the nature of a lion is to pounce and eat there and then. Whereas the nature of a, of a wolf is to kind of rip his prey away, scavenge almost, and take it to his lair, and then he'll eat. And the Gemara says all of them benefit and they all, they all have pleasure from their experience. Move on, knowing that distinction between the predatory habits of a lion and a wolf, we can appreciate why why a lion would never have any association with a pot. What's a pot? It's something that you use to delay the process of eating until the food is nicer. Why wouldn't the lion do that? Because the lion pounces and eats right there. Whereas a wolf that does not eat immediately, but rather takes the food to a safe place. Right? Only after he's ripped away the meat that he wants to eat to his lair, that is 
more similar in, in process to cooking food in a pot. Because that's going to make the food more edible and more pleasurable to eat. So now what does the wolf represent in terms of, rep- uh, of preparation for a mitzvah? Because we've identified what the, the deer, the lion, and the fox represent. So what does the wolf represent? The wolf represents that you've done all the preceding steps that were necessary to prepare an item to be used as a mitzvah. You've definitely prepared it clarified what you have to do and made the item ready and you've transported it to the Jewish person and where relevant you've wrested it from the authority of whoever's controlling it. Then you could look at what the wolf represents which is further preparation by cooking it in a pot. Just like the cooking adds taste to the food that represents adding more hidur to the mitzvah. Which then shows us that both the Talmud Bavli and the Yerushalmi with regards to the wolf follow their key, uh, their key way of thinking. From the Bavli's perspective, the energy and enthusiasm of what you could achieve now. That overrides the greatness that you could achieve by having beauty and pleasure and taste in the future. That's why the Babli doesn't speak about the principle of a wolf and a pot and cooking. Because from the Babli's perspective, that is a major luxury. It's not something you need in order to do a mitzvah. It doesn't have to be most mood to just get it done. Whereas the Yushalmi's perspective is the potential future added value overrides the present energy and, and, and speed. Therefore, the Yerushalmi will also talk about the wolf who sells the pots, which represents the ultimate level of Hidra that you could add to a mitzvah. Now, it's interesting, but there's a Mishnah that almost illustrates exactly this distinction. So the, the Mishnah there says, what if Yom Kippur falls on Erev Shabbos? So then the Seir, the communal sacrifice that the Kohen Gadol would bring on behalf of the Kohanim, on Yom Kippur, that goat would be eaten on Motzeh Shabbos. So you'd eat it even though you can't cook it then on Shabbos. So the Mishnah says something interesting. Those Kohanim who came from Bavel outside of Eretz Yisrael, they would eat it before it was even cooked. Eating meat while it is raw definitely is not the ideal way to eat something that belongs to a korban because the Torah tells us that you have to eat lemoshcha ligidula. Sorry, korbanos always have to be in the most elaborate and extravagant way. Which would only really be if the meat was cooked properly. So therefore the Tana tells us you know why these people ate the meat raw because they're from Bovel. People from Bovel their focus is the Hoive. What can we do now? We can eat it now? Okay, it's not the best way to eat it but we can eat it. 
Mashen can Kohen Eretz Yisrael, whereas the Kohanim from Eretz Yisrael Shilishitosam who follow the Shita obviously of Yerushalmi ain't a mitzvah behider, and therefore they focus on the fact that if you were to eat the meat raw, it's not the most ideal way to do the mitzvah. You don't find them rushing to eat meat that isn't palatable because they want to show how enthusiastic they are to do the mitzvah. With all of that information, we can now plug the distinction between Bavli and Yerushalmi back into the distinction between Unklus, who came from Bavel, and Tagum Yonis and Benuzil, who came from Eretz Yisrael. Why they explain the Pasuk of Binyamin differently. Firstly, what's the principal difference between the two translations? Targum Unklus or Targum Shel Bovel. Unklus came from Bovel, therefore his translation is a Bovel attitude. Whereas Rabbi Yonis and Benuzil lived in Eretz Yisrael, and therefore he translates from the perspective of the Yerushalmi, the Eretz Yisraelica approach. And that's why, following those two schools of thought, is how they translate this pasuk. So we already distinguished that according to the Talmud Yerushalmi, a wolf principally represents another layer of hider in a mitzvah, and it's a value that we should include in a mitzvah and prioritize in a mitzvah. And from the Talmud Babri's perspective, it's a nice to have; it doesn't have to be a priority. So therefore, Lefi Targum Yonis and Targum Yerushalmi, from the perspective of Targum Yonis, which is the Yerushalmi approach, So the Pasuk, that part of the Pasuk that says Binyamin is like a wolf, is a preparation for the next part, which describes the eating of the Korbanes. Therefore, his interpretation is, In his territory sits the base Amigdash. The whole purpose of a base Amigdash is to allow and facilitate having Karbonis, as the Rambam clearly tells us. That's the Rambam's definition of the base Amigdash, a place that is designated in order to bring Karbonis. And as we've already identified, the wolf represents not just preparing for a mitzvah, but preparing in the most elaborate muhudar way. That's what Targum Yonis Ben Uziel is illustrating here. Bringing the karbonos is not completely dependent on whether the structure of the base amigdash is there or not. Because technically you can bring a carbon, as the Rambam tells us, even if there's no base amigdash. But there's no question that the most mahudar way, technically you could bring a carbon without a base amigdash. But the most mahudar way to bring a carbon is obviously in the complex of the base amigdash. Therefore, Targum Yonason, who takes the Yerushalmi approach, who says that Za'ev represents exactly that, the beauty of doing a mitzvah in the best way possible, describes that the bracha to Binyamin is to have a base amigdash, the most mahudar, fullest way of bringing carbonus. Whereas from the perspective of Unklus, who is the Bovel attitude, there's a Eve element of being able to cook, to be able to produce something in its very best way, is not key to the process. Therefore, from the Unklus' perspective, the word Ze'ev over here is not used in the same context 
as the Yerushalmi uses it, rather it just represents the general concept of bringing a carbon. That when it describes the wolf eating its prey, it represents the Mizbeach eating its carbonus. That's why Unklus translates that in his territory will be that key place, the Mizbeach, where the carbonus can be brought. Or as the Rugged Chava told us, the section of the Mizbeach's base where the blood goes. Because that's the most important thing. Get the carbon done. And how do you fulfill the objective of a carbon? By sprinkling the blood. Therefore, the place where the blood goes, that's what we care about. The rest of the base, I make the structure. It's nice to have. It doesn't have to be there. This will play out in a practical halacha. Let's say there was a, an opportunity right now to be able to build a Mizbech on, 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 uh, on the Har Habayis, and we don't have the opportunity to build the entire Beis Amikdash. So Ladasa Bavli, from the Gemara Bavli's perspective, which is Targum Unklus, then go ahead, build that Mizbech, and bring those Korbanas. Because we focus on the present, and in the present we can fulfill the Mitzvah, so let's do it. Even though nobody would suggest that this is the ideal way to bring a carbon without a base amigdash. But the Talmud Bavari would say, go ahead and do it. Whereas the perspective that the Talmud Yerushalmi reflected in the Targum B'Yonason, we would wait. Even if we had the opportunity to build a Mizbech, we wouldn't do it. Until we can build the entire Beis Hamikdash, because we would need to make sure that when you bring a carbon, it's in the best way possible. Like we said earlier, that it's only the people from Babel who are willing to eat a carbon when it's not fully cooked. So only they are willing to accept a Mizbeach without a Beis Hamikdash. Talmud Yerushalmi says you have to have a Beis Hamikdash, and we'd also say. We have to have a base amigdash and we need to have it. Take it from Yah, Debish should bring it down Malmaila with the coming of Mashiach now.